my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. All right. Well, thank you so much, Keith, for joining us today. Really excited for this conversation. Um, I'd like to start off uh, with talking about interest rates because uh, interest rates and debt, low interest rates, higher interest rates, today in our fiat world, everything is um, controlled or at least heavily influenced by the Federal Reserve. And so we have this association that 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 is part, like inherently part of the fiat monetary system and that, you know, debt and, and you know, uh, interest rates going up and down are kind of inherently negative uh, uh, features of the system. So I want to hear from you because uh, you've, you've talked before about how um, uh, that is an integral part of the, uh, of a free monetary system and, um, and a component for, for growth long-term. So um Let's let's start off with as brief of an overview as you can about um, uh, how interest rates work on a free economy, free money, and um, and then we'll kind of dive in from there. Yeah, let, let me just start really, really broad, and then I'll I'll try to narrow it uh, down to that particular question. You know, a free market is a forum or venue in which productive people can coordinate their activities. Now, this is the this is the thing that the central planners don't believe is possible 
in some cases, the free marketers, you know, are just, you know, almost bemused in wonderment. How in the world do millions of people, let alone billions of people, coordinate their activities? And um, so Leonard Reed wrote something very brilliant called iPencil that basically says there's no one person that knows everything that one would need to know to make a pencil. You know, the graphite is produced over here and the little ferrules are produced over there. The rubber comes from these trees in Malaysia, you know, and so on. Um, and then there's one, one guy that knows how to assemble it, but he doesn't know how to produce or even procure the raw materials. And, um, you know, there are various people that coordinate in, around the borrowing and lending of money. So everybody during their working years is saving, presumably, you know, assuming you have a free market and you don't have some government guaranteed Ponzi uh, retirement scheme, everybody's saving for retirement. And the best way to save is to actually put your savings to work and get interest, not to just hoard gold and silver. And obviously that's the monetary metals value proposition is put it to work and get interest on it. And you get the compounding. So by the time you turn 65, most of what you have is the compounding effect and not the actual raw, you know, set aside from your, from your salary. And so all those people are, um, you know, looking to lend essentially, usually through a bank or, you know, financial intermediary. Um, and then similarly, once you get to retirement, you want to live on the interest and not on the principal. If you live on the interest only, you never have to worry about outliving your money. If you're eating the principal, then there's a, you could plot what date it is when you run out. And then, um, you know, you become the beggar on the steps to the, uh, to the church, uh, you know, hoping that enough people will, will give you something that you can eat for a day. Um, it's a terrible position that nobody wants to be in. Um, and so on the, other, on the other side of the equation is an entrepreneur who uh, needs to borrow money in order to um, expand. And so there's a win-win there's a deal um, that is, you know, one side has wealth but not income, you know, something they've saved, and they want to get income on it. And the other side, as somebody who can produce income but doesn't have the wealth or the capital to make the investment. Now, if that, if that trade can't happen, and historically, we know there were times when this was not possible, either after the fall of Rome, if you revealed that you had gold, I mean, they'd kill you for it. So the gold tended to be very deeply hidden and not come out, um, you know, for, for trade or, or, or lending. Um, at other times, you know, lending was illegal. It was called usury and penalty was death. Um, so, you know, if you kill people for the crime of lending, obviously you're not going to get a lot of lending. And so um, you don't get that coordination. And so those two parties are, are kept, you know, kept apart. They're, they're trying to come together, but they're being kept apart by uh, either lack of, of law and order in the case of the Dark Ages or um, a bad law in the case of uh, the high medieval, you know, period. Um, but what they're trying to do is ultimately um, exchange wealth and income. So one side has wealth, it says, okay, here, use this. And then um, in the exchange, give me, give me an income stream off of that wealth. And that income stream is coming from the additional finance, that uh, additional production that you financed. And so everybody wins. Society gets more goods and services. Um, the uh, entrepreneur gets to get rich, hopefully, and the, um, the savers get interest on their savings. And um, this not only can occur without a central planner dictating to everybody what the interest rate shall be, um, but of course did historically occur without there being a central planner 
dictating how this was going to occur and what the rates, what the rate and other terms were going to be. And, um, you know, today it's so difficult to envision. I, I coined a term, the otherwise free marketers. So these are economists that can tell you what's wrong with minimum wage and hot dog stand regulation and zoning and, you know, import tariffs and all these things on, on those issues, they get the free market uh, argument. But when it comes to money, well, man, you know, we need to have an irredeemable fiat currency and a central bank to centrally plan it. And then, um, you know, dictated interest rates and all the rest of that. And on top of that, maybe they're for, you know, less regulated banks or something like that. Um, but almost nobody can really imagine, well, how would it work in a free market? And, um, you know, but yet it did. And, you know, historically, you, you can research how, how it happened. But uh, So I have a question about that. Um that relationship between the saver and the entrepreneur. Um, what about the what about the role of equity? Let's say debt and interest rates didn't exist. It was outlawed. People didn't want it. Whatever, whatever the case, um, would would equity plus distribution of profits not not be sufficient to replace that uh, in the relationship between the saver and the and you the know, I look at a question like that as suppose, you know, suppose you outlaw meat, you know, would fruits and vegetables and maybe insects not be sufficient replacement for meat? Well, <laughs> yeah, sort of, maybe. I mean, you can get your basic calorie intake and you can get the amino acids you need to survive biologically. I think life would be a lot less fun without meat anyways. Um, you know, <laughs> yes, businesses, you know, finance themselves with equity, but equity and debt are two different tools that are appropriate in two different circumstances. Maybe another analogy that I would use hmm. would be, imagine you couldn't have uh, screws or screwdrivers. It was only nails and hammers. Could you not, um, hmm. you know, assemble a house, put drywall up and all these things with just nails and hammers. Well, you could. It turns out that nails don't hold drywall as well as screws do. So maybe you need more of them and then the yeah. drywall tends to get loose, you know, works the nails out eventually and gets loose. Uh, you know, the screws that was, you don't have that problem. So, you know, it's a different tool. Um, and of course, um, there are certain folks that are hammering away at equity um, and trying to undermine that as well. And there's definitely a movement, in some cases by the libertarians of all folks, as well as the left, uh, to say that um, you know corporations should not have a limitation on liability, and some of the folks who are advocating this may not realize, and others uh, almost certainly do realize, what that limitation is is a limitation that the owners, the shareholders, are not liable for anything more than whatever they invested. So if you put a thousand dollars into Apple shares, you know whatever bad things that happen to Apple, the most you can lose is the thousand dollars. But they can't go after you personally and wipe out your family estate, you know, three generations of legacy, you know, college kid, you know, college fund for your kids, take your cars and your house and all the rest of that and leave you with a shirt on your back. They can't do that because there's a limitation on liability. But there's some folks that want to eliminate that, say that's an artificial construct of the crony state. So if there's if, if liability is unlimited, if putting one dollar in meant that my entire net worth is now at risk then nobody would buy the equity. And then, of course, if you outlaw debt or you use some monetary system that you know borrowing and lending don't work, um, then you take away debt as well. And then you collapse all of society down to the you know, 12th century 
village where it's a, you know it's a couple of small farming families with a, a, a you know a family owner a single person owned blacksmithy uh, a cobbler and a cooper that's what the little subsistence village would have had you know a thousand years ago twelve hundred yeah. years ago and um, you know I, I do think that borrowing is the right tool for certain businesses where equity you know equity is too expensive um, and then if they were cho- if they had a choice between equity or not expanding. So a lot of businesses would choose not to expand, which is exactly the opposite outcome that you'd want. You should want more goods and services, hmm. make things you know more plentiful, make society you know wealthier. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, th- th- so there's a quote that you uh, um, you and I talked about. Uh, this is I don't know a couple months ago now, and uh, I, I believe you said it was J.P. Morgan said uh somebody was somebody was asking him how to solve the the banking panic Uh i believe it was like the bank panic of 1988 i think and he said uh raise the interest rate to four percent and the gold will come out of the you know uh, of every of every nook and cranny or something like that so you could correct me on what the actual quote is and then could you explain uh you know what what uh, what he was hinting at so the the way i heard the story and and i had i had googled it once and i'm i'm Every time I think about this, I kick myself because I didn't keep the link. And every time I've tried to Google it since, I've never found it anymore. Uh, but the way I heard the story was somebody supposedly went up to him and said, Mr. Morgan, Mr. Morgan, there's a crisis. There's a shortage of gold in New York. What are we going to do? And he said, raise the interest rate. 4%, he said, we'll pull it off the, uh, draw it off the continent. Right. So in those days, that would have been an expensive and risky um, you know, journey by steamship. Five percent, he said, we'll, hmm. we'll pull it down off the moon, um, which was, you know, pur- pure <laughs> hyperbole. He could not have imagined that 60 years later, um, they would actually send somebody to the moon and, and recover them alive. Hmm. Um, that was just pure fantasy at that time. But what he's getting at is a really simple concept, which is if there's no interest, then all the gold disappears into private hordes. I, I, I used to use the analogy of like an English muffin you know, just disappears into all the little nooks and crannies, um, which are effectively unlimited and um, doesn't come out. And um, even in cases where, you know, totalitarian governments have sent guys with machine guns door to door to try to confiscate all the gold. They don't, I mean, get some, you catch people, either, either they don't have a place to hide it or you catch them by surprise and you get some gold that way, of course. We don't get that much of it. What happens is people just bury it deeper. You know, it used to be buried a meter down, and now yeah. they dig it up and they bury it two meters down. And, um, uh, you know, gold just goes into hiding. And the only force that will pull gold into the market is interest. And that was that was our thesis at Monetary Metals, that if you pay interest, it will draw gold into the market. And um, so, you know, I, I propose a thought experiment that goes like this. Suppose you had an actual circulating gold coin standard. Well, yes, there's bills and there's bank accounts, but there's also like actual gold coins are in circulation. And suppose something happened without getting into what this might be, that the you know, interest rate went to zero and it was no longer possible to earn any interest. Then obviously nobody's going to deposit their coins in a bank. Nobody lends for zero. If you have a choice anyways. Yeah, you're right. Now, yeah. In irredeemable currency, you don't have a choice. You're, you're disenfranchised. But in gold, you absolutely have a choice. You can take that gold coin home. And that's exactly what would happen. And then, because everybody who's working for wages has to save, the workers will actually be pulling the the coins out of circulation and putting them under the mattress. 
And so whatever coins that were in circulation would quickly be pulled out of circulation and the whole thing would seize up. Uh, and then gold's not going to be a medium of exchange anymore. It's too valuable. It goes into private hoards. And um, the economy is going to crash, uh, you know, if that happened. And then today we're in the exact opposite situation. We have paper money that ceaselessly churns. Um, and, um, you know, gold, there's no interest rate. So gold goes into hiding. But if you pay an interest rate, you, you, know, you pull it back into the market. Um, so that's interest is the is the only reason why anybody would, uh, you know, bring their gold to market. Does that same um, does that same effect happen with fiat currency like the dollar? Like, I mean, like right now, the Fed is obviously they've raised interest rates. They're keeping them higher than they've been in a very long time. Is that something then that um, should we see the same result of that, or is there, um, since like you said, it's it's an unredeemable currency. It's not like we have. A choice and not not everybody can go pull you know paper dollars out of the bank for the entire money uh, money supply so is the same thing going There's on differences. Different? i was going to say even if you pull the paper banknotes out of the bank and put them under the mattress you're still actually extending credit to the system like if you pull the gold coin out of the bank you have pulled credit which is why fdr broke the gold standard made it legal to own gold confiscated it all is you know you are actually pulling capital out of the banks um, causing a credit contraction. Uh, but today, if you pull paper banknotes out, now you're just a creditor to the Fed, right? A dollar bill, bill is an, an archaic word for credit. Of course, a dollar bill doesn't say the word bill on it. It says Federal Reserve note. Note is another word for credit. So you're a creditor to the Fed, bill is a and note, the Fed yeah. is lending to the government <laughs> and the banking system. So all you've, all you've done is you've hopped from one frying pan to another. You haven't actually changed your uh, economic position any um, but it is different in paper. Paper does not have the same properties as gold, one of which, which I think is extremely important and extremely underappreciated, is that the marginal utility of gold does not decline. Um, we've been mining and producing gold, uh, so far as we know, for at least 6,500 years. Uh, I found some warrior king buried in Bulgaria. I, I read the article a few months ago. I don't know when this find occurred. It could be a stale article. It could have been new. And um, he was buried with like seven kilos of gold. It was 4,500 BC. So, um, you know, mankind has been valuing gold for a very long time. They've been hunting for it for at least 6,500 years. And yet um, we continue to produce more without any sign of a glut. The market happily absorbs whatever the mines can produce. And so that's evidence that um, the marginal utility is not diminishing. Because if it were, marginal utility would have hit zero and, and you know, gold production would have, would have stopped a long damn time ago, like as it would in any other commodity. Um, paper doesn't quite have that. The dollar has a pretty slow decline on its marginal utility, but clearly it does. And so the more of it's an issue, you know, the dollar does sort of lose value, not in the way that the quantity theory of money would predict, but it does. Um, however, I do note, um, so if you go to, um, maybe you can put in the show notes a picture of this graph, but if you go to FRED, which is the St. Louis Fed, has a website with all kinds of great data and, and charts. They have a chart of um, money velocity um, for, for M2, for yeah. instance. Man, that thing's been in a long-term decline since at least the year 2000. I, mean, I, I looked at it recently. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, sure enough, it picked up, actually, now that interest rates are up. 
Now, I, I don't really think that velocity is a real thing. Um, I've written a lot about this so-called equation that the monetarists love, mv equals pq and v is velocity, and it's a fudge factor. I say that you know economists have physics envy. Um, it, you know, it looks like uh, <laughs> um, you know the the ideal gas equation was that mv equals uh, what? Um, now I'm forgetting the. Uh, 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 anyways, the um, PV equals NRT, the ideal gas equation in physics. Mm. They sort of have physics envy and they want to write this equation. Velocity is kind of a fudge factor. It's like, well, the math doesn't work, so now you plug in whatever number for velocity. But conceptually, you can sort of see that money is either circulating or not. And the lower the interest rate falls, the less circulation you get, at least as a percentage of the total amount of it that's out there. Um and that that is actually has actually been happening for for decades in um, in the dollar uh, as well, not as clearly and not as strongly you know not as powerfully obvious as it would be in gold, but um, yeah, it is actually a thing. So it's it seems to me, and you obviously correct me if I'm wrong in the way that I'm uh, that I'm kind of thinking through this. The reason why the increase in the gold supply hasn't resulted in uh, diminished utility is because the free market has determined that when um, when it's when it costs less to get an ounce of gold out of the ground, people will get an ounce out of uh, an ounce of gold out of the ground. But if it costs more than an ounce of gold to get an ounce of gold out of the ground, then people are going to stop doing that. And so uh, the demand for money influences the increased supply for money. And if we could. If we had a similar sort of influence on the supply of dollars, then it would have the same result. And I, 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 this is obviously hypothetical, but let's say we no Federal Reserve, banks are allowed to operate in complete freedom. So they have if they fail, they fail. No bailout. If a bank, uh, you know, operates conservatively enough, then they'll continue to go. They can do fractional reserve banking if they want, which would increase the supply of dollars. But then there would obviously be a contraction at some point, which would reel that back in. And so you could see how there might be a similar sort of dynamic that could occur with fiat or dollar bills, paper bills, where the supply and demand for money based on you know spending, the savings pool and production would uh, have have a, a, an effect where it increased and then decreased the supply of dollars, similar to how that has happened with gold. Yeah, I think there's a great analogy there. Um, the the difference is, of course, it's not going to be the cost of the paper dollar itself, which we just assume is, is trivial, effectively zero. Mm. Uh, the cost to the bank is the interest rate they have to pay to get the deposit. Um, so yeah. the banks have to pay interest to, to raise the credit. So dollar is credit, gold is money. Um, that's a highly controversial view that I have, by the way, but I'll, I'll, def- I'll die on that hill if necessary. Um, so I, I want to circle back to that. Can you restate that? The dollar is money. Oh, sorry, the gold is money and the dollar is credit. Um, okay. So uh, banks are intermediaries in credit. They deal in credit. So they have to raise credit from their depositors and that has a certain cost. And then they are putting that credit to the borrowers, typically businesses but maybe home buyers that want a mortgage for their house. Um, and that has a, uh, a price that they get to charge and the banks will do it when there's a positive spread 
net, you know, a net interest, uh, you, know, you know, margin is positive, then they'll do that trade all day long. And, you know, they're arbitrageurs like everybody else. Everybody in the free market is buying something in one market uh, or several markets, because usually they're buying labor, is they buy some raw materials, they buy some labor, and they combine it in a way, and then they sell it in another market for a higher price. So let's say you're a farmer, you know, you're buying seeds and fertilizer. Let's assume you have the land free and clear or whatever. You're buying seeds and fertilizer and insecticide and labor and diesel fuel. And um, uh, you turn that into wheat that you sell in the wheat market. And hopefully you're selling the wheat for more than the sum total of all the costs that it took to produce it. Well, a bank is a dealer in credit. So they're buying credit um, you know, from savers at a lower interest rate, you know, savings accounts have always had lower interest rates than, let's say, the bond market. And then you're putting that credit into the bond market at higher interest rate and, um, you know, making the spread between the two. And if that spread contracts, for instance, there's less demand for credit from businesses, then the banks will stop because there's no longer money to be made doing that trade. So in the free market, it's always the the spread you know, c- compresses to zero, and that's the signal to everybody, you might as well stop doing this if you're not going to make any money doing it anymore. Um, of course, when the government takes it over, then, yeah. you know, uh, there's no limit as to how far it can go and, until the regulators decide, uh, you know, it, it gets to their attention, we should stop this because this looks like this is bad. Well, maybe that, you know, should have stopped it three years ago, but who knows? So, so there is a similar dynamic uh, as far as the end result, but the the the, the causes and, and the the mechanism by which it actually takes place is you know is very different. Um, it's not about the cost of producing a new ounce of gold, which actually any commodity you know if we if we were talking about seashells or silver or anything else, any other commodity any, that has a restraint of atoms and molecules um, would, would be would be somewhat similar, but something. That is that is purely credit, just uh, has has that different mechanism because there's no at the end of the day there's no cost to write a, another zero on right. a piece of paper. Right, but the only cost is what you have to pay to get the you know the bank has to get the credit from the savers and has to pay yeah. for that, and as that cost is you know going up, and and it has to find businesses that want to borrow, and the more the more that they extend to businesses, the less hungry businesses are for credit. So the businesses are willing to pay less. The savers are demanding more, and eventually that spread will, you know, compress too tight. It wouldn't even have to go negative. It'll just compress too tight. It's no longer worth anybody's while. But if I said, here's a great mm-hmm. business opportunity, you know, you can drive across the border and buy, uh, you know, wheat for $100 a bushel and then drive it all the way back and you can sell it for $100 and one cent. You were like, why am I going to waste my time, let alone all the fuel and everything else right. for a penny? But it's every every yeah. um, uh, business sort of has a, a walking away point, uh, and we can call that the marginal. Yeah. In this case, the marginal bank or the marginal uh, uh, financial intermediary will walk away when that spread gets. My dad works in B two B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. 
Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're too tight. Okay, I've got I've got two questions, and I both of them are follow ups to this conversation. So we've got a fork in the road here, but I'm going to try and remember to come back to the to the second question. First question is Javier Malay. This is a little bit of a side uh, um, uh, tangent here. Javier Malay just won the uh, uh, he's the president of Argentina now, uh, maybe the first oh, Lord, libertarian. My economics are so cool that he copied my haircut. <laughs> that's true you guys do have very similar hair <laughs> and very similar economics it seems unless he's uh you know as some people say a wolf in uh, sheep's clothing um but uh but one of the things that he wants to do 
is get rid of the central bank and dollarize the economy, which is essentially, from their perspective, it would be a lot more of a free market in money. And if you can dollarize, then you could as just as easily switch to any other form of money um, uh, easier than, you know, if you if you're still stuck in that rut of using your own uh, money controlled by your own central bank and central government. So do you think that move is a step in the right direction? Do you think that's completely missing the mark? Um, uh, and and uh, what do you think the effects will be of uh, of Argentina dollarizing if they're able to do that? Well, you know, obviously, it should be obvious that the U.S. dollar is significantly less bad than the Argentinian peso. And the Argentinian mm-hmm. peso has, you know, what's the official inflation rate? Two, three, four hundred percent. You know, more than that. And, and the yeah. reality is probably more than that, right? Um, so, you know, if you switch to the U.S. dollar, it's less bad. So in a certain sense, okay, how can you argue with that, right? At least he made an improvement. The, the lives of the average Argentinian, you know, people got less bad. They're less badly off than they were. Um, and of course, most of them try to keep their savings in dollars anyway. Um, you know, and of course, there's very structural obstacles to doing so. And now since I have a family who came from Argentina, and I, I know a little bit more about the kind of history of it, if you... Even in cases where people were smart enough to say, I'm going to have dollars, if you held it in the Argentinian banking system, there's been instances where the government, you know, you wake up one day and they say, we're converting your um, your dollars that you hold in your bank account to pesos, and we're doing so at the official one-to-one exchange rate. So you thought you had $100,000, now you have 100,000 pesos. And of course, the official exchange rate is a complete ripoff. The reality is, you know, 10 to 1 or who knows what. Um so not only don't they trust the Argentinian currency, they don't trust the Argentinian banking system, and they try to hold it principally either in the U.S. or Switzerland. Um, so, you know, I don't know if this move is going to, you know, earn back the trust of, of the people over there, but assuming he means it and assuming that they don't, um, you know, reverse it, then sure, they're obviously better off saving in dollars than in, uh, in pesos, but the broader question, is it really a step in the right direction? Um, I think there's a lot of political issues today that you'd seem to get a big gain by, you know, by doing this, you know, making some move. My, my favorite one to, to, to talk about is uh, school vouchers. But seemingly, are, you know, a good move, but actually not really move in the right direction. They're at best a lateral. Or worse, they're actually moving in the wrong direction because they allow the corrupt regime to continue to operate, but alleviate some of the, the pain, you know, so it's like you continue injuring yourself, but now you're on painkillers. Is that really a step in the right direction? Um, and so, of course, what I would love to see is an actual free market and money where they eliminate legal tender laws, they eliminate, you know, they let, they let people keep their books in whatever currency they choose, including gold. And then, of course, most people right now would choose dollars. But at least they're free to choose. And if gold can make a case for why you want to use gold, then, um, you know, some of them would. Um, and then, you know, you can begin to have a gold standard, you know, emerge. Um, which if you just declare it, we're going to dollarize. You've just swapped, you know, one frying pan for another. And, okay, this frying pan happens to be cooler. It's at a place farther from the, the hot, hot part of the fire. Okay, Great. Uh, but I, I do see a certain irony in that all the people that are constantly 
and you know, criticizing, and rightfully so, criticizing the Fed, criticizing the dollar and the incredible breathtaking growth in, in the quantity of dollars and all that, cheering Argentina for jumping into that same frying pan. It's like the dollar isn't good. It's just less bad than the, than the peso. Now, you, you said something in there that I thought was interesting because um, you, you said that a lot of people in Argentina already kind of choose to keep their savings in dollars when and if they can. And it reminded me of in uh, uh, the collapse of the Weimar Republic in Germany when um, people, as much as they could, were trying to keep their savings in dollars, which at the time was just gold. Um, and uh, I've, I've done a, a, a fair amount of reading about different hyperinflationary collapses of currencies. And it seems like anytime a government tries to come in and say, okay, our currency is collapsing, we're going to make a new fiat currency, and here's the new declared value, it always fails. And the only time something actually sticks is when the government just chooses whatever the people have already chosen as their preferred method of saving, which historically that's always actually been gold or the predominantly gold-backed currency like the dollar. Um, and uh, and so it's like the, the, the government – we read about these stories in hindsight and we – you know, 30 years on three pages of, uh, uh, you know, of a history book. And it looks like the government chose to go back to a gold standard. But really, when you look at the how it how it played out, many times, it's the people were already using that better money. And the government really had no choice if they wanted to have any purchasing power, the government would have to then use the money that the people had already chosen. Um, and uh, so number one, can you uh, correct me if uh, if I'm wrong about that, uh, that impression that I have uh, about uh, history and, and collapses of currencies? And then number two, um, what if what if people choose something like Bitcoin <laughs> instead of uh, instead of gold in the future? So the, the first is, is pretty easy. Yeah, I think that's a really, really smart insight that, um, you know, if the government orders people to do what they already wanted to do anyway, they can declare it to be an unmitigated success, victory. You know, right. we nailed it. Well, that's right because you know you're forcing people to do what they already wanted to do anyway, and you shouldn't need to force it. But okay, yeah, you can declare. Uh, uh, you know, you won. You know, you won in this case. Um, absolutely, um, and especially you know, and, and after hyperinflation, they have no credibility. They, they can change the name of it. They can change from peso to boulevard to this to that to the other thing. The government has no credibility, and, and it's, it's credit is shot. If you don't have credit, nobody will yeah. extend, you know, nobody will lend you. And that's what a currency is. It's lending, ultimately. Um, so switching topics to Bitcoin. The problem with Bitcoin, uh, which you alluded to, I don't know if we were on camera or off camera when you said this, was that... Um, the quantity of Bitcoin cannot respond to changes in supply and demand. And if the quantity can't respond, then the only thing that can respond is price. So um, the price of Bitcoin is inherently, intrinsically volatile. Um, I had a debate organized by the Soho Forum, um, which is sponsored by the Reason Foundation. And this particular um, debate was hosted by the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. 
So we had a full auditorium and then they, they televised. It's on YouTube. Anybody can watch this. Just Google Soho Forum Gold versus Bitcoin. And there's my smiling face on the on the YouTube uh, thumbnail. Um, and my, my opponent, Pierre Rochard, conceded that Bitcoin will always be volatile. It can never be stable for, mm -hmm. for this and other reasons. Um, and so if it's not stable, then, of course, that presents real problems, even in use as a medium of exchange. If I'm going to make a payment to you and we kind of agree on terms, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm just buying a hamburger, there isn't necessarily that much volatility in the, in the 30 seconds it takes to do the transaction. Although in Bitcoin, I mean, it can move a percent or two, even in a few seconds, and it has. Um, so that, that creates problems, which means the merchant has to charge more for the implied volatility. Um, but where it really breaks down is borrowing and lending. Imagine I borrow, um, you know, 10 Bitcoins to buy a house. And then Bitcoin goes from $42,000 to a million dollars, which is what all the Bitcoiners keep promising it's going to do. Um, I don't think they know where the price is going any more than anyone. I, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows where the price is going to be. But let's let's just say, let's assume that everyone says it's going to go to a million. So that means that the price of Bitcoin went up 25 times, which means your mortgage just went up 25 times. You don't owe $400,000 anymore. You owe $10 million. Who in the right mind would borrow with the, with the promise that your mortgage is going to go up 25 times? Um, so it's, it's fundamentally unborrowable. Uh, which means you can't use uh, debt financing, uh, you know, for anything. And um, that is a significant reduction in coordination in a free market. And Bitcoin is supposed to enable free markets, but here it is undermining and destroying, uh, you know, coordination between savers and, uh, and entrepreneurs. So isn't that uh, isn't that part of the process of it becoming money and not something that would uh, be a feature of it once it is universally used as money? And the second part to that question is the the only quantity of any money that actually matters is the quantity of money that is uh, actively entering and leaving circulation. If we have um, you know, a trillion tons of gold, but it's locked in the center of the earth. It's inaccessible. Therefore, it's not actually part of the supply. If you have 90% of the Bitcoin held in cold storage. Um, Let me just interrupt you there. And nobody's accessing there. There's a big it. difference between so, gold, you know, in the center of the earth, which is a few thousand miles under underground and that, you know, temperatures and pressures that would not only destroy a human being, that would destroy any kind of equipment you tried to get down there. So it's effectively, mm -hmm. it's not available to human beings versus cold storage mm -hmm. is in somebody's hands. Uh, and that person doesn't choose to bring it to market at the moment, but could choose to bring it to market tomorrow under the right uh, conditions. Right. Um, right. So that's, but, but that's, that's the point that I'm, I'm trying to get at is that if you have a, a potential supply that is kept out of the market, then um, when prices, you know, the price or the value of Bitcoin would fluctuate, that in and of itself would have a, uh, a stabilizing effect on the value of Bitcoin by bringing Bitcoin from out of supply into supply and vice versa, the same way that gold does. I mean, yes, there's been a 1% increase of the supply of gold from mining over the course of human history, 
but that's not the majority of the increase or the decrease in the usage of gold. A lot of gold is held um, in vaults and it's, you know, not actually in circulation. So, so two points. One, at the beginning of the debate, I made the point that, um, you know, the marginal utility of gold doesn't decline. And I said this was something that Satoshi was terrified that he knew the answer that Bitcoin did, which is why Bitcoin is a cap. Um, there is no cap in gold, which the Bitcoiners, of course, think is a bug in gold, and that they fixed that with a feature, which is a cap in Bitcoin. But you don't need a cap in gold because the marginal utility doesn't decline. Uh, more, more gold doesn't mean that the value collapses. And in Bitcoin, um, you can't run that experiment because they've strictly capped it. Um, but I, I, I say let's you know run a thought a thought experiment here for a minute. So so the idea is that as Bitcoin monetizes whatever that means, um, and eventually it's going to converge on a stable price, or at least a stable value, right? So we all recognize the dollar is going down. So you know Bitcoin's price in dollars will be going up, but only at the rate that the dollar is being debased. You're not going to have this crazed rocket ship uh, journey upwards, which is, you know, the Bitcoiners say, oh yeah, measure everything in Bitcoin. I'm like, do you really think the world is at a hyper deflationary, hyper collapse since 2009 where things, you know, things collapsed 42,000 to one? I mean, come on. And clearly the value of Bitcoin has gone up. It's not that the value of the world has gone down. Um, so yeah. suppose it was the right price. Uh, let's call it the MRP, um, so the, uh, yeah, MRP, magic right price. And that's, I don't know, $10 million. Just make whatever arbitrary number you want. Um, of course, there are a lot of people in Bitcoin today, I would argue the vast majority of them, that are in it for the price speculation. They're not in it for the free love and, and the drugs and, and uh, you know, hippie values and, and drum circles and all that. And come by, yeah, they're in it because number go up. So suppose everyone mm -hmm. knew that there was a magic right price of $10 million. And when it gets to $10 million, it's going to be stable and it shouldn't go up anymore after that because um, that's it. It's fully priced. Uh, it's been fully monetized, whatever term you want to use, fully hyper-Bitcoinized. Well, if you were um, in it for the speculation, then you should sell it at 9999999 because there's no longer, I mean, you're, you're just looking for whatever asset's going to go up. This one isn't going to go up anymore, so you might as well dump it. And, um, of course, all the other people that are in it for the same reason will also be dumping it, which means the price, once it hits 9999999, the price is actually going to go down, which means you should really dump it at 9998. And then someone else is going to figure that out and, you know, it's all game theory stuff and sell it at 9997. And so um, ultimately you get to realizing that if the price of something is set purely by the marginal speculator, and that there are no other forces that set price, and that's that's my contention for Bitcoin, that um, price can never be stable because speculation can never set a stable price. That when, when, when prices of things mm -hmm. are stable, it's because they're being set by arbitrage. There's an actual human need this thing is serving. Um, there's actual real-world input costs of producing it, and uh, there are arbitrages between the two, and of course, arbitrages between those inputs and all other markets that could use them as inputs. So if let's say you're producing um, gold, you need oil is probably your single biggest input. Well, also oil is an input to everything else. So the price of everything else is tied together in so many ways because they all require oil and labor as inputs. Um, 
and steel and, you know, a lot of other things. Um, so, uh, you know, since speculation is the only thing that sets the price of Bitcoin, um, it will never be stable, can never be stable. And this, and this was conceded in the debate. He absolutely conceded the price is not going to be stable. This is the Bitcoin proponent. Now, it doesn't mean he's right. It could be that Bitcoin is going to be stable and this guy got it wrong. But I thought, I think it's interesting that, that uh, he conceded that readily. Um, not, not, not ever to be stable. All right. So two questions about that. Number one is, isn't that, um, isn't there a case to be made that the price is not only set by the speculator, um, that there are people who want to use it actually as money. Um, and so I save it as money until I use it to spend, to get other things. And if so, then the argument by going down through speculation is the same argument that if we had uh, a long-term consistent amount of deflation like like we would if gold was money again, then people would um, never spend any money because prices would always be cheaper tomorrow. When in fact, we know that that's not the case because we have needs today. And so it seems like... um, it is possible that there would be some amount of price volatility um, that would be um, mostly uh, um, dealt with through uh, savers and spenders. If indeed it was being used as money and people were using it to spend, then when the price of Bitcoin goes down, that means things are uh, you know, getting more expensive relative to Bitcoin and vice versa which would either incentivize saving or then on the other side, incentivize uh, spending, Um, which would then, other than the supply not going up, absolutely, the supply that's in use would be going up and down through those those value incentives. So um, a lot of nuggets to uh, to unpack there. Um, I'm not a fan of the idea that... uh, if prices are going down, then people don't spend. Um, and we have one massive elephant in the room, which is everything electronics or high tech. Prices have been falling for mm-hmm. many decades. And um, you right. know, the more they fall, the more the people buy. So, um, you know, people have a supercomputer in their pocket nowadays, uh, which is a phone, um, because they got cheap enough. But it didn't discourage people from buying something that was slightly bulkier and slightly less uh, powerful, you know, five years ago. And that didn't discourage people from buying something that was less powerful, you know, the year before. Um, so people buy when yeah. it meets their need, when the price, when the price and the and the need met, uh, you know, correspond. Then people buy. Um, but anyway, so the price of Bitcoin. If there are people that are just saving in Bitcoin and spending their Bitcoin. Um, they're not real. They're basically price takers. Well, when they put their savings in, they get whatever Bitcoin they get for at that price at that moment, and then when they spend it, they get whatever price for the Bitcoin that they get at that moment. They're not. Um, when I say price being set by speculators, you know, it's it's people saying, "Okay, I want to buy it because they're looking at a chart saying it's going to go up, um, or it's going it's approaching the halving, or whatever, whatever the uh, narrative is at that moment," versus. People saying that if Bitcoin gets to thirty nine 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 nine, 
I'll buy it because it's an input into something that I can sell for 41,000. So that's an arbitrage. Someone who says, if copper gets below $4, I can buy more copper to make more you know, plumbing pipes and sell the plumbing pipes. So copper is connected to the plumbing market, it's connected to the electrical market, it's connected to so many other markets because it's an input uh, to these things. And so there's, there's various arbitrages there that um, uh, you know, ultimately set the, the price of copper. So what you need are bidders, not people that buy and take the offer price, but people who put in a bid and they don't move off their bid because it doesn't make sense to them economically. If it's a penny higher, they're not profitable and they're not making enough profit anymore to take the risk to do the trade. And in Bitcoin, you don't really have any of that. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, even the people are using it for savings and, you know, we discussed that in the debate too, you can't really use something for savings that has this kind of volatility. Uh, ironically, it's a time of the debate and, and Pierre was talking about savings. Bitcoin had lost about 75%, uh, between, uh, so that debate occurred, I want to say it was August, you know, between November and, and June, we lost 75%. It was starting to come off the lows at that point. Um, and of course, nobody who is an actual, let's say, retiree with no further uh, income potential in their careers can put their life savings into something that could have a 75% drawdown. Um, yeah, sure, if you're 31 and most of your working career is ahead of you, most of your working career will be at a higher salary than whatever you make right now. And um, you, know, you want to put 100% of the really modest nest egg that you have at the age of 31 you know, i.e. a few thousand dollars or whatever, you want to put that into Bitcoin, great. But they don't understand why, it, and, and in the debate, I use the example of an octogenarian widow who can, cannot make any more money in the, in the remainder of her life. They don't understand her economic situation. She can't do that. You know, if you're 31 and you have $5,000 to your name and you put it into Bitcoin, sure, have at it. The most you're going to lose is five grand and you're, all your earnings are ahead of you anyway. And, you know, you'll make that times many times over. You know, if you're, if you're good at what you do, um, so uh, you know, for those reasons, no, I don't, I don't agree that it ever stabilizes. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, 
Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Now, something that we both agree is currently not stable and never will be stable is, uh, is, and I think both sides of this debate, I should say, agree is the dollar. (laughs) Um, obviously there are periods of time where it's, uh, where it's fairly stable, especially compared to other things. The fed right now is raising interest rates. And this was the other fork in the road earlier that I mentioned that I wanted to ask. And so now I have to circle back, uh, back to that as we're kind of getting a little bit low on time here. They're currently raising rates uh, with the stated intention of fighting inflation. And I've seen you uh, state a few times on Twitter that this seems ill-informed. So I want to hear your thoughts on the, uh, uh, the relationship between um, uh, you know, pr- general prices going up or down versus what the Federal Reserve is doing with, uh, with interest rates. So let me start out with uh, an example that I hope most people can relate to. Suppose you're in the... Um, trucking and warehousing business. You're in the logistics business, which is a capital-intensive business. Um, and you're coming out of COVID lockdown and then the whiplash where suddenly everybody's ordering, you know, tons of stuff on Amazon and, you know, but the ships are all at wrong positions and some of the shipping companies went bust. Some of those ships were scuttled, you know, during the long period of essentially lockdown. So there's essentially a shortage of capacity in the logistics business. Um, so you're putting together your business case for buying, you know, whether whether it's building more warehouse space or buying more trucks, commissioning more ships, depending on which segment of this industry you're in, 
you're putting together your business case to make a big capital investment and, um, you know, buy more uh, uh, stuff to, you know, increase capacity uh, because there's, because there's a shortage because COVID destroyed a great deal of it. Uh, certainly at the margin it did. And, you know, you're putting together your business case and you're plugging in all the, all the costs, including the interest rate. And suddenly the interest rate goes up. Well, what does that do to your carefully prepared business case? Like you're about to go, it's okay, now we're going to go to the bank and we're going to borrow. And at that time, you would have been borrowing at, let's say, 3%. And now suddenly the Fed is hiking and now it's going to cost you 4%. Well, if that's $100 million worth of capital, right, that's a difference of a million dollars a year in interest. And depending on the margins you're making in this business, that million dollars of additional cost breaks your business case. So you say, well, I can't do it. So um, every producer who's thinking of adding capacity, um, their thoughts are put on hold as soon as the interest rate goes up. So, but conversely, if the interest rate goes down, if you were, were on hold, you had a plan to say, I'm going to open another hamburger restaurant. I have a chain of 67 hamburger restaurants. I have, I have a business plan for 68 at the next marginal town where you know, growth at the edge of the city is. And, um, but it doesn't really quite work. Uh, you know, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't produce uh, a, enough of a profit to make the risk worthwhile. And then they cut the rate of interest. Well, suddenly, ding, you know, the bottom of your spreadsheet turns uh, you know, from red ink to, to black. Um, and, and you say, okay, let's borrow, let's go do this. And so if one, and here's how I kind of frame it, because I'm not, I don't want anybody to interpret this as Keith is saying the Fed should lower interest rates. I don't think there is any good central plan, and I don't think there's any good central planner, and there is no right interest rate that can force down our throat uh, by a gunpoint, which is what it is. But if one's concerned were consumer prices, and one were willing to overlook the many egregious harms of falling interest rates, and there are many, and just focus only on consumer prices, then one should want lower interest rates because it's a constant. And every time it ticks down, there's an increase in the incentive to, um, to borrow, to expand production. It's not only the hamburger restaurant that wants to borrow, it's the company that makes hamburger grilling equipment. It's the company that, company that makes the tile, that awful tile that they always put on the floors in those places, and the plate glass windows and everything else, the lighted signs behind the, uh, the counter. Um, all those manufacturers have a case to expand you know, their production capacity when the interest rate goes down. And so the Fed has a sign backwards, like they think that they're fighting inflation by raising rates. Um, or, you know, monetary metals, we put out a cartoon uh, I guess when, when Powell started this or the discussions about whether we should raise rates. And so it was a picture of um, uh, a factory or something was on fire. And there's flames everywhere. And then Powell's there with a gasoline truck spraying gasoline all over it. And there's a reporter saying, uh, do you think that's enough to put out the fire? Like, we've got something very <laughs> fundamentally wrong. It's like a category error. Gasoline doesn't put fires out. It only makes them burn bigger and hotter. Yeah. So... Um, we're just in a very bizarro, uh, you know, world. I don't know if I answered your question or not, but uh, I feel like I'm rambling. Yeah. So it, se- it seems like basically they're they're looking at you know one small part of of the equation and not looking at the whole uh, impact, which means that the the feedback, the you know feedback mechanisms 
they're still happening, but they're just not uh, they're just not looking at them. And basically, prices are a function of supply and demand, and the interest rate is the cost or the price of money. And uh, if that's left up to the free market, then the actual demand or or lack of it will influence the price of money to the equilibrium point, the place that it's supposed to be. And that may go up or down in t- at times, um, but that reflects the actual demand for it. Yeah, I, to, to phrase that slightly more formally, if the interest rate goes down below marginal time preference, people will pull their gold coin and say, I'm not lending, it's not worth it. You're only going to pay me that for this risk and this lockup for, for a year or five years. I'm not, I'm not taking it. So um, credit is pulled if the interest rate gets to that floor. The ceiling is set by the return on capital of the marginal enterprise. You can't borrow at 10% to open up a hamburger restaurant that produces 8% return on capital. So the um, return mm-hmm. on capital tends to be pulled towards the interest rate. So if the interest rate is falling, you keep pulling the return on capital downwards. Because anybody that gets a greater return on capital will borrow uh, to expand production. If you expand production enough, you add enough supply, prices come down until return on capital is marginally above the interest rate. And then, you know, conversely, if the interest rate is way above your return on capital, the smartest thing to do is to sell all of your uh, you know, capital assets off to get the cash to go put them in T-bills. I mean, why would you be working your you-know-what off and taking risk to get 3% if you can get 55 in T-bills? So, so it's an arbitrage in both yeah. directions. Um, uh, and, and, then, and I literally mean it as an arbitrage. If you can borrow at less than your return on capital, you will borrow and increase your production. If the, on the other hand, if you can deposit and get more than your return on capital, you should sell your assets and just park it in, in T-bills because it's a hell of a lot easier. Um, so yeah. uh, so the Fed is, yeah. it's not just that they're um, only looking at one part of the equation. They've got the dynamic exactly backwards. If you want lower consumer prices, mm-hmm. you should have lower interest rates. And this is not a recommendation for lower interest rates. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other harms caused by this. But from from a consumer price perspective, yeah. there's a reason why we have this benign, what people call inflation environment, from 1981 through 2021, and that's because we have a falling interest rate. Um, and that uh, hmm. that was a you know constant stimulus to ever greater amounts of production, and therefore you know prices remained not necessarily falling, but let's just say soft. Uh, there were a, a lot of non-monetary right. forces pushing prices up, like relentlessly increasing regulation, you know, making things more expensive, but then falling interest rates, making things cheaper. The net result was prices are pretty soft. You know, producers did not have any pricing power. Um, you know, in the 1970s, and I'm just old enough to have been, a, you know, 12 years old in 1979. Um, 1979, producers had pricing power. If they just decided, well, I'm going to increase my price by this percent, they could just do that. And everybody had to pay. And that's what it was. It's not not the reality uh, that we've you know grown up on for the last forty years. Yeah. With um, with gold, this is something that um, used to be illegal uh, when the when it was uh, illegal for American citizens to own gold. Um, uh, FDR also outlawed the gold clause, which was. 
uh, in debt contracts to be a, a you know a headwind against uh, money printing. Um, that if I if you owe me money, I can say you have to pay me back in gold instead of dollars. Um, and uh, that gold clause in debt contracts was also outlawed. And then 1971, we leave the gold standard. Um, I believe it was a few years later they also got that, that yeah. clause uh, out. It was 75, okay, um, repealed. But for the longest time, still nobody was denominating debt in uh, in gold. And um, based on what we've talked about, interest rates um, and the utility of gold being money and putting it to work, um, you you've started this. I, I always say it's a, it's it's revolutionary because you know nobody's doing it and it's it, it meets so many needs. You know, win 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 uh, for everybody involved. Where um, I can I can lend out my gold. I can earn interest on my gold. It's paid in gold. That interest is denominated in gold, <laughs> which is just crazy. So my ounces actually grow. And um, the person on the other side that is uh, borrowing that gold actually comes out the other side much better because they are in the gold business. And so it, re- it eliminates yeah. price risk uh, for them. So number one, how did you come up with this idea. And then number two, tell us, tell us a little bit more about what I left out there um, uh, and what monetary metals is doing. You know, it's very daunting. I mean, I guess entrepreneurship is always daunting. I I always like to say in my lighter moments that everybody sees problems in the world. And most people, what do they do is, you know, after work, they get, get together with their buddies at a bar and drink and kind of grouse about the problems a little bit. And then, you know, go home and the next day they go back to work. Hmm. Some people lobby the government and they think the government's going to fix all the problems. The entrepreneur is the crazy guy that says, I see a way to make money solving this problem. And uh, hmm. depending on the magnitude of the problem, like it's always daunting, but the bigger the problem, the more daunting it is. And um, so I saw that there was a problem in the monetary system and that it isn't working anymore because the currency is irredeemable. That has two consequences. One, the interest rate is completely unhinged. It could shoot the moon as it did from end of World War II to 1981, and it can fall into the black hole of zero as it did post-1981. The other is that because there's no extinguisher of debt, that the debt necessarily, inevitably grows and grows exponentially. You have to keep producing more. It's a breeder reactor. It keeps producing more and more, and it has to. And if you try to stop it, that's the other problem with what Powell is doing. If you really want to try to stop credit growth, you're going to blow everything up, starting not with the U.S. government. Look at the U.S. government, and they're going to, it's going to be hard for them to pay their uh, you know, T-bills when due. No, no, no. It's all the other debtors that are going to be squeezed to default first. The U.S. government will be the last debtor hmm. to be pushed into default. Um, so I, I saw this problem, and I said, at the same time, I was, I was working on this economics concept that interest is the force that pulls gold into the market. So, well, historically, we know there was enough gold to run everything. So, so a little bit trivia item, which is actually pretty important. How much gold do you think there was in London in 1896, which was kind of arguably the height of the gold standard, international gold standard, when London ran the world's commerce and the world's monetary system? How much gold do you think they actually had behind it? 160 no tons. The state of Nevada huh. annually produces 166 tons. 
So plenty of gold. Wow. That we have we have out there, but it doesn't circulate. It, you know, whatever amount of gold comes mm -hmm. to market, which today uh, is something like three thousand tons, that gold disappears. It's a black hole, and you know the market will just absorb all of that. Uh, it just disappears. There's no amount of gold that would ever make it circulate anymore because the interest rate zero. So I'm working on this idea that interest is what will draw gold into the market. And then I'm working on this idea that the monetary system is um, broken in a very fundamental way. It's not a matter of, well, we need a new Fed board, a new Fed chairman who will just set better monetary policy. That's not it. I wrote an article called Sound Money Isn't What You Think. And I had a picture of the uh, uh, the Norman Rockwell painting that was on the Saturday Evening Post, and it was called The Double Ride. So it's a woman buying some uh, a chicken or something like that, and it's on the scale. It's hanging on the chains from the ceiling. And she's she's got her thumb pushing up underneath it to try to lighten it so she's going to pay less. And the butcher can't see that because the the meat and the, like the metal pan is blocking her. He can't see her thumb. But meanwhile... He's got his finger mm -hmm. trying to push it down, and, and there's a fold of butcher paper, so she can't <laughs> see his finger putting it down. And I asked the rhetorical question, suppose that the upforce from her thumb and the downforce from his index finger exactly matched. Would you call that an honest you know, measurement? Would you call that a sound measure of the weight of the chicken? Of course not. They're both cheating. And even if the cheats mm -hmm. happen to cancel out by, by pure luck, right? So imagine if the central bank were trying to debase the currency at precisely the same rate that industry is increasing its efficiency, right? Because every day, every producer of everything is constantly finding ways to do less with more or do, do more with less. Um, so imagine those two rates canceled out and the net result was prices weren't moving up or down. Would you call that sound money? Of course not. So, um, you know, what would yeah. sound money be? It would be when the people are free to choose what they want and they're going to choose something that actually works. That thing we know is gold. It's not banana peels. It's not seashells. It's not salt. It's gold. They're going to choose gold if you didn't impose, you know, legal, uh, you know, restrictions in between them and the gold. So I'm, I'm wrestling with all these ideas, and I'm, you know, already my previous company was pretty daunting anyway. So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be daunted by this. How? Oh, you marry these two together and say we got to offer interest on gold, and that will pull the gold into the market. And um, what are we going to do with it? Well, we're going to place it in businesses that can do something with it. And at first, that's going to be the gold industry. So we lease gold to businesses that need gold as inventory or work in progress. So that could be um, uh, refiners, mints, jewelers, recyclers, coatings companies, both high-tech and low-tech. Uh, you know, low-tech would be electroplating. High-tech would be sputtering. If you've ever seen mirrored sunglasses, you've seen hmm. gold that's been sputtered onto a plastic uh, substrate. Um, hmm. We'll lease gold to these guys and we'll lend gold uh, to businesses that have a gold income, like gold mines, although there are other industries as well. So there's about a dozen verticals that we can serve um, you know, between these two products that can certainly mobilize and pay interest on a lot of gold. Beyond this, there's a lot of other things we can do, but it's a step-by-step -step, you know, process. And I kind of liken it to, do you know what the first coin-operated video game was? That's the second coin-operated video game. And I, I'm sorry, I set mm. a trap for you with, with that question. So unless you're from the video game business, which <laughs> I came from, you wouldn't necessarily know. So Atari developed this, I, don't, I think it was called something like Space War. 
So there were two players. They both had paddles and they had a button to, uh, actually two buttons, one to thrust and one to fire. And there's a star at the center of the screen which had gravity. And so you'd try to slingshot around that to come from behind your opponent like it was a dogfight. And then you'd fire your bullet, which also followed the gravity so that you could kind of sneak the bullet around there. And it was complicated. So they produced this game, they test trialed it in a few bars, and it didn't really do very well. And basically the feedback that came back was, it's too complicated, do something, do the simplest thing you can do. So the engineers kind of scratched their head, hmm. hmm, okay, what could be simpler than they both have a paddle and there's a ball that bounces back and forth. And that was fun. So hmm. they marketed that, they put it in a Interesting. bar. And they come back the next day and they said, how did it do? And the bartender said, well, it seemed to be really popular at first. And then your machine broke. Okay, so they go open it up. They put a one-gallon milk jug in there for the quarters. And the milk jug had completely filled up. And then there was like a chute that brought the quarters from the slot. It was jammed all the way up with solid with quarters until they're practically sticking out the slot. And I said, okay, we can fix that. And they put it in a five-gallon <laughs> bucket. Um, so, you know, the idea is you have to make something simple enough for where the market, what the market's ready for at that moment in time. And then later, of course, video games became much more complicated the market was ready for them. So there's a ton of other things we can do, hmm. but um, right now it's it's leasing to, uh, as I said, that dozen verticals and lending to gold mines and a few others. Um, and then as it grows, you know, there'll be more products that we can roll out and ultimately bring back. So I, I argue to our investors, our equity investors, that a good working definition or a working gold standard is when anybody who wants to can deposit their gold and their interest on their gold in gold. So you don't have to deposit your gold. You have the right to hold the gold at home. No taxes, no machine gun guards going door to door confiscating. You have the right to hold it at home. Or, you know, put it in a warehouse or put it in a safety deposit box or whatever it is you want to do. Give it to your friend to stick under his mattress. But if you want to, you have the right to deposit it and get interest on it. When that condition is true, and anybody who wants to is depositing it and getting interest, that's a working gold standard. And you get all the other behaviors and activities you'd expect, medium of exchange, store of value, um, you know, unit of account, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, will all come as a consequence of it being used in, uh, in finance. So therefore, the gold standard is when we scale up. That is what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring mm -hmm. the world to a better um, you know, place in terms of monetary system, something that actually works something that re-enfranchises the saver, uh, reduces the arbitrary and capricious power of the government. Uh, not obviously, not only just to take from you what you've earned, but then also to use it for political purposes to increase their power in a myriad of other ways, um, none of which is really healthy. And um, so it's very daunting, um, but we proved the concept. We proved that the gold does come for interest. And um, now we're at the you know, ordinary, any ordinary business, once you've gotten traction right now, you have to execute, now you have to scale. So that's that's the stage we're at right now. So daunting, but exciting. Well, that's very exciting. And it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I've, I've stated this many times, but it's one of the reasons why I'm an equity investor and a customer uh, of uh, monetary metals. And um, you guys have been, you know, long-term partners in my YouTube channel as well. Um, what I, I, I wanted to ask you this. I know we're, thank you for no being so generous with your time. Um, we're, we're running over here. So, uh, I, 
one of the um, there there's a lot of people have been burned by like the crypto FTX collapse. And there's this idea out there right now that which, you know, for, for good reason, like people, people got burned by this, that if something pays you interest, it's inherently a Ponzi scheme or a scam. And it even goes back to, you know, the Federal Reserve and the, you know, fiat monetary system. And um, h- how do you, uh, you know, ha- have, have you heard people, you know, say that? And how do you kind of uh, uh, discuss that with people that, that have gotten? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, a natural question. And obviously, every time some crypto company blows up um, and turns out to be a fraud or a scam, then, of course, that question becomes very topical. Um, I think mm-hmm. you know, a couple of observations. One is that the whole ethos of crypto is get rich quick. That's why the investors, I mean, let, let's, let's just call, call it for what it is. That's why the investors are there. And so that bred a whole industry of companies with the same ethos. And if you're a company with ethos of get rich quick, um, you may or may not be an outright Ponzi scheme, but at the very least, you're going to be pretty lax. And there's a lot of things you have to invest in to be a proper custodian in terms of internal controls and systems. And, you know, if you're just there to get rich quick, you don't necessarily make those investments. Um, but ultimately in crypto, since they're not borrowable by anybody who produces anything real in the real world, I mean, there's nobody growing wheat. There's nobody mining steel or copper or aluminum. There's nobody manufacturing widgets. There's nobody who buys trucks or ships and warehouses to uh, handle logistics. There's nobody who's a retailer or distributor. Hmm. Um, there's nobody with looms producing you know, fabric and turning that into garments who borrows Bitcoin, let alone any of the other um, uh, you know, cryptos. Um, so how do you get a yield? Well, it all becomes self-referential. It all becomes, well, you know, you wrap it with enough complexity that maybe even half the people that are doing it don't really realize what it is, but it's borrowing in order to bet on the price action. It's just more leverage to bet on prices. And as long as prices are going up, everybody seems to be making lots of money. It seems to be working. Prices go down and it all blows up. So that is inherently Ponzi, you know, by its nature. Um, you cannot get a, a self-referential yield. You can't build a software platform that intrinsically generates a yield internally. There's no economic purpose to it. And if there's no economic purpose to it, people rightfully should say, well, what is going on here? What we're doing is fundamentally different than that. We're going to real businesses that are doing real things in the real world who need, have a real finance problem. Suppose you're a jeweler and you have 500 ounces of gold jewelry in your shop. Well, that's a million dollars. That, I mean, if it was copper, you just buy it. Copper is $4 a pound. Who cares? It's gold. It's $2,000 an ounce. That has to be financed. So if you borrow a million dollars to buy a million dollars worth of inventory and the price of gold drops, you now have a $900,000 asset, but you still owe a million dollar liability. You are insolvent. So then what you have to do if you're, you know, uh, sophisticated about this is you borrow a million and a quarter, you buy a million dollars worth of gold, you put a quarter million dollars in a brokerage account and trade gold futures. And then, you know, if you're a refiner and you have 75 employees, most of them are basically blue collar, uh, you know, either doing mixing assets and chemicals or melting and dealing, you know, basically working in a hot shop. And then you hire some 27 year old MBA in finance and give them the keys to a brokerage account with a quarter million dollars in capital in it and access to a hundred to one leverage and say, please don't do anything I wouldn't do, but just keep us hedged. You know, <laughs> things can go wrong. Things can go wrong. Tonight. So yeah. if you lease the gold, 
then it's not your asset. It's not on your balance sheet, which first of all protects the investor because the investor keeps the title to it. And then secondly, because it's not your asset, the price action isn't your problem. What you owe the return of at the end of the lease period is not a million dollars, but 500 ounces. So as long as your business is every time I sell an ounce uh, to a customer, I buy another ounce of, of uh, you know, more jewelry from the wholesaler. So I'm always keeping 500 ounces of inventory in stock. As long as the business is run in a sustainable way, then you can always return 500 ounces at the end. You never have that. Right. And it, again, it doesn't right. matter what the price does because it's an ounce right. for it's, an ounce. It's, it's, so it's yeah. very simple metal accounting. And so it simplifies, not only does it give them the finance they need, because they need finance, but it, it does it in a way that's simpler mm-hmm. um, versus the conventional way of doing it. And they're, of course, happy to pay interest for the privilege of getting the finance and the built-in hedge. So that's how we generate interest by going into the real world and finding real businesses. Now, there is a risk. Obviously, there's a risk if you lease the gold to the wrong guy and he just tucks it under his arm and it flies to a non-extradition country. Um, you know, and so we obviously do a lot of due diligence. We have insurance. There's a lot of things we do to mitigate, you know, those risks. And um, but uh, it's not. It, it should be pretty clear. And when people study our program, we don't really get pressed. How do I know it's not a Ponzi? I mean, you can see because we describe the transactions. Right. We talk about the companies we're, we're leasing gold to. We do a press release on every deal. You can see that, okay, there's some real activity here. And some of our customers are highly referenceable um, that they're, uh, you know, either publicly traded or well-known names in the space. Asahi Refinery, Istanbul Gold Refinery, uh, Akobo Minerals, which is traded in, as public in, in Oslo. Um, you know, you don't get to go do press releases with public companies. Um, if you didn't really do that deal, I mean, you'd get a cease and desist letter. It would blow up in your face really fast. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, we don't. I yeah. mean, people ask that question casually, but when they look at it, it's pretty clear that what we're doing is uh, is a pretty straight, it's a pretty straightforward, pretty simple business. Yes, there's a risk, but it's a pretty straightforward business. Well, I love it. I could talk to you for hours. Um, so thank you so much for being generous with your time here, going a little bit over, and uh, we'll have to have you back on. Um, but really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll talk to you later. All right. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.